beginning this morning, which is called The Art of Neighboring. Art of Neighboring, asking the question, what if we loved where we live, along with many other churches here in the city. And so we'll begin our time uh, over the next six weeks here this morning in the book of First Peter. That's going to be your scripture reading. It's going to be on the screen to your left and your right from chapter 1 and chapter 2. As always, you can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's God's word to us this morning. So what if we loved where we lived? That's the question we're asking. What if we really believe, what if you really believed that God actually loved the people who live next to you so much he put you right next to them that they might come to know him and spend an eternity with him? How would we live if we believe that? How should we live if we really believe that? What would the art of neighboring look like? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at over the next six weeks in this series as we join again with churches from all over Austin to try to answer these questions and more. And like I said, we'll be going from 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter a bit, which give us, these books give us, an amazing and dramatic series of pictures and metaphors and ideas to help us see not only how the early Christians changed the world in their day, and we're going to look at that, but they show us how we can do the same in ours today. So let's look at this incredible opening theme and resource the book of 1 Peter gives us by asking three questions of the passage we just read. Three questions we're going to ask and answer. Number one, who are we? There's two kinds of callings we'll see. Number two, how can we know if we are who we say we are? And finally, how can we be who we are called to be? Now, are you confused yet? Maybe a little. Good. 
little disorientation goes a long way in a sermon. Let's begin here and just ask again the first question of the passage. Who are we? Who does it say that we are? Well, the book of First Peter, uh, it says, was written to a certain group of people, specific group of people. Who were they? We see verse 1, to who? God's elect, exiles scattered. Exiles scattered. There it is right off the top, the first theme of the book of Peter, to which he's going to return in the book, which is sort of Peter's style, by the way. If, you're, you know, if you read your New Testament, uh, you may see in contrast to Paul, who's much more linear in his thinking, who just sort of marches right through his topics and ideas. Peter's much more, shall we say, fluid. <laughs> he brings stuff up, circles back later, forgets, then, remo- then comes back to it. Peter was less lawyer more layman, in other words. But there it is, uh, the word exiles, and after it is the word scattered, which is in the Greek, the word diaspora, which was, hear this, the word typically used of the Jewish people who had been scattered or dispersed out of their homeland across the world. But here, Peter uses that word of who? Who? Christians, yeah. Christians, he says, you Christians not Jews, Christians, are God's dispersed, scattered people who are not living in their homeland. Hmm? How can that be? Well, again, because of the first word Peter gives us, he says we are God's exiles. Exiles. That word is the Greek word peripodemos, which is a combination of two words, as you can see, para alongside, podemos, one who travels or pilgrims in a strange land. Now, your translation may say, you know, strangers. Some may say pilgrims or exiles. And the reason it's sort of diverse is because we don't really have, an, you know, an accurate sort of one-for-one translation of parapodemus. So let me give you my best shot at it today. All right, here we go. Two, two concepts. First, you could translate this word as sideways walker. Sideways walker. Or resident alien. Resident alien. Paul, excuse me, Peter here is brilliantly combining two concepts into one word that show you who you are called to be as a Christian. So what does it mean to be a resident alien? Well, first of all, as a resident alien, you're living in a foreign land, right? But you're not a tourist. You're not a tourist. You don't walk around uh, with a Hawaiian shirt on, with you know sandals perpetually, a camera around your neck everywhere you go. No, you're deeply involved in the place, in the culture where you live. You know the language, uh, you know the customs, you know the roads and, and the restaurants. You know, as a resident alien, the best place to get Mexican food, don't you? Yeah, you know that. You, you go to the same schools. You work in the same businesses as the citizens do. You're not a tourist. On the other hand, you're not a citizen either. Your citizenship is where? Another place. Even though you're subject to the rules and the laws of that nation, even though you know your neighbors, even though you speak the same language as your neighbors, they think you're kind of strange. Like you're kind of odd, right? Why do they do that? Your neighbors ask of you. Or why don't they do that? your neighbors ask of you. In other words, you totally blend in in some ways and you completely stand out in others. You're a sideways walker. Sometimes you're walking in the flow of the culture, but sometimes you're walking sideways or at odds to it. You're a resident and an alien both at the same time. 
right? So that's what an exile is, a resident alien, a sideways walker. And Peter says, that's who you are as a Christian if you rightly understand yourself, right? So that's who you are. That's who we are. But let's ask, what does that mean, right? What does it mean for us? What does it mean to be this kind of person in Austin, Texas today? There's two implications I'd like to draw out for you, if I could. The first thing that it means to be an exile, first thing it means to be a resident alien, is what we see in the word, this is word, it's also again translated as pilgrim. It's what a pilgrim is. What's a pilgrim? Well, a pilgrim, which is what some of your translations give you, a pilgrim is an ongoing traveler, someone who is always moving toward and yet has not arrived at their destination. When one of the great Christian men in history, a man by the name of John Bunyan, was jailed in the 1600s in England for daring to host a church service outside the Church of England, when he was in jail, do you know what book he wrote that's never been out of print for the last 350 years? It's not Citizen's Progress, but Pilgrim's Progress. And actually, the full title of the book is this, The Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come. Oh, what's Bunyan trying to show us? It's this, that the fundamental experience of the Christian is that you, in a very real way, are always on the way. You're always on the way. And therefore, you're always going to be having, like Pilgrim, trials, difficulties, hardships, uh, you know, sufferings even. You see in the book, Pilgrim is always growing because he's always learning because he's always traveling. He's always traveling. To be a pilgrim, an exile, means that while you are in the land, you are on a constant never-ending, sometimes up, sometimes down journey, journey in life. And if you think that the Christian experience is otherwise, something otherwise or something else, that shows two things. Number one, you've really had an easy life so far. And number two, it just shows you've never read the book of Acts. (laughs) But the second meaning, the second implication of what it means to be a resident alien in Austin, Texas is this. It means this. One day, because you're only living here temporarily, one day, where will you go? You'll go home. You'll go home, right? You're only here on a passport or a a visa or a green card of some sort. One day, you'll go home. Let's ask, what is home? What's home? hmm? Well, all you sci-fi fans out there, or as Carrie calls you, Morgan's people, uh, will like this one. Imagine you, uh, you blast off in your rocket ship and you head for Mars. You unfortunately crash land on Mars. You get out, you take off your helmet and you suck in two massive lungfuls of Martian air. What's going to happen to you? What are your lungs going to feel like? They're not going to be feeling good, are they? No, they're going to be experiencing breakdown. Breakdown. Why? Because Mars is not the home of your lungs. Mars was not designed to support the deepest need of your lungs or your body. They, uh, you know, Martian air was not designed to keep you alive. Now, your lungs are designed to keep you alive in an atmosphere that's roughly 20% oxygen, not 1.5% oxygen. Thank you, Google. Right, you can find that also for yourself. 
from that point on, your whole body will begin to experience breakdown. You will want to be somewhere else and feel it deeply. And not only will you experience bodily breakdown, if you hang out on Mars without a helmet, (laughs) you'll experience emotional, psychological breakdown. Why? Because you're all by yourself. You're totally alone. You go crazy when there's no one there with you for long enough, like Tom Hanks in Castaway. He starts talking to a volleyball after time, right? No matter how introverted you say you are, Without other people, you begin to psychologically break down. Isn't that strange? Why is this? Well, because Mars isn't home, right? Not home. You'll experience physical, psychological, emotional breakdown on Mars because it's not your home. Mars doesn't support who you are. And by the way, have you ever noticed that we are always trying to make places into places that fit us? right? Uh, for, for example, ever notice when you're in a place for more than just a few days, two or three days, or uh, you begin to make it yours, right? Like in your office or your, your cubicle, you begin to arrange the whole thing to fit you, right? You maybe lower the chair, you raise the chair, uh, you, you make the chair again, you know, in the, the spot that you want, you begin to put pictures of the people or places that you love on your desk, the vacation that you want to take. You fit it for you, right? To make it feel like what? home. Yeah. Now, let's go back to Mars for a minute. Imagine, because you're not me and are therefore mechanically inclined, you can fix your rocket ship. And so you, right before you run out of air and you fly back to Earth, ah, take off your helmet, you're home. But are you? Are you really home? Because on Mars, you would have died quickly. But on Earth, the same thing is going to happen here just a bit more slowly. You're still going to die, right? How can this be home? Even here, you're breaking down moment by moment. And one day, your body or your mind are both going to break down. You're going to give out. You're going to die. Welcome to church this Sunday. Aren't you glad you came for the message, right? Now, you know this. You just don't ever want to think about it unless you've got the character like Ziggy from What About Bob in your life, right? To force you to think about it. Now, Plenty of Christians, non-Christians, excuse me, non-Christians have also noticed this over the years, including the existentialist Albert Camus, who pointed out, look, our bodies don't fit here. We're going to die. We don't fit the world, he points out, and we all try to ignore that. He put it like this. He said, to put it all in a nutshell, why do we have an eagerness to live in limbs that are designed to rot? For most men, the approach of dinner, the arrival of a letter, or a smile from a passing girl are enough to help them get around, but the man who digs into ideas finds that being face-to-face with the fact of death gives rise to disgust and revulsion, and the revolt of the body is what we call nausea. Yeah, it's interesting. He's saying, we don't fit here, and the fact of that is so painful, we'll do almost anything to ignore it and forget it. But Christian or non-Christian here today, at least have the guts of a Camus to face facts and acknowledge that death screams at you that you don't fit here, right? Why will you die? Because the world doesn't fit you. Why does it bother you when someone dies? It bothers you, right? Why don't we just say, hey, no worries, mate. It bothers you because the world doesn't fit you. You see this again, not just at the funeral, but all the way back in your office. Why do you put this stuff in your workplace? Because it doesn't 
fits you. And then you go home to the people in the pictures on your desk, right? But then when you're at home with the people in the pictures, where do you want to be? Maybe on a vacation, right? Away from the people in the pictures. And then when you're on vacation, away from the people in the pictures, where do you want to get back to? home, right? Back to the people in the pictures you couldn't wait to get away from. When you're at home, you want to be on vacation. When you're on vacation, you want to be home. Why? Because you're not really home in either place. Neither place ultimately fits the deepest longings of your heart. And the Bible's been trying to tell us that for thousands of years. And by the way, when Camus and the Bible all say the same thing, you ought to poke your head up and listen. Look at God's people here in 1 Peter. Scattered, not home. Look at the Jews in the Babylon in the Old Testament. Not home, trying to get home. Look earlier at the Jews in Egypt. Not home, trying to get home. Look at Abraham, right? Left his home and became what? A pilgrim in whose steps we follow, Hebrews says. Why is this the experience of all humans? Hmm? And the answer is, it's because it was the experience of of the first humans. The first humans, Adam and Eve, lost paradise, the place created for them, and went where? Into exile. Into exile. And we went with them. You're not home yet, church. You and I, Christian people, we're resident aliens. We're on our way. And where do we want to get to? We want to get to the place, right, that fits us, where love lasts, where who we love lasts, and where what we do lasts. Where is that place? Oh, well, it's not a place so much, the Bible says, as it is a person. It's a person. Psalm 90, verse 1, Moses says this, writes it from exile. Oh, God, you have been our dwelling place, our home for all generations. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. God's heart is our home. That's what we're made for, where we're made for, and who we're made for, and where we're headed if we're Christians. So how then do we live if we're really pilgrims? Peter shows us with one foot in our culture and one foot out of it, with our hands here working, building, making it better, and yet with our hearts in another. Hands here, hearts there. We're resident aliens, church, sideways walkers and exiles. And by the way, before we move on, let me say this. You will never be able to rightly understand yourself in this life if you don't grasp this, nor will you ever be an effective neighbor if you don't understand you're in exile. You're in exile. So that's the first question. Who are we? We're exiles. Number two, now our second question. Well, how can we know if we're that, right? How can we know if we're living out who we say we are? Well, because you would think if it's that important to get right, I mean, if it's that crucial, there's got to be some kind of litmus test. And thankfully, there is. Peter gives it to us. Remember how I said uh, Peter was a bit of a fluid thinker, right? He, he brings something up, forgets about it, then brings it back later. Well, this is an example of that. He brings up the exile bit in chapter 1, circles back to it in chapter 2, and this is where we find the heart, the picture of what it looks like to live as an exile. Verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and what? Exiles. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day he visits us. All right, what's this saying? It's saying that to live a good life, and we'll define that in just a minute, but saying that to live a good life, all your neighbors will love you and celebrate you. You will be an unmitigated celebrity and they'll line up in throngs to get to know you and celebrate you if you're a Christian. No, that's not what it says. It's saying that if you live a Christian life, what's going to happen? There will be people who accuse you of what? Doing wrong. Isn't that amazing? There will be people, in other words, in the culture who see your good life, and they'll, see, they'll say what you consider is good is really bad, and not even just bad, but sometimes even criminal criminal. They'll accuse you of doing wrong. And yet, it's saying at the same time, there will be people who see that kind of life you live and say, that's amazing. In other words, to live as an exile, to have a fully Christian life is to be, hear this, simultaneously attractive and repulsive to those around you because of not just, not your theology, but your life your deeds. And by the way, this is church exactly what happened to the early church. They did this. They lived such good lives among the pagans or the polytheists that those folks around them came to Christ in droves. And this is documented both by non-Christians and Christians alike. In other words, after the dust of history had settled, this, what you're about to see, is the early church record. How did they live out first, Peter? How were they great neighbors? four ways. First, they forgave. They forgave. Now, it's hard for us to understand how radical this was in their day, but back then in a shame and honor culture, forgiveness was unheard of, man. It just was. Why? Because if someone wronged you, uh, if they wronged your family, you had a duty, an obligation to avenge yourself and get yourself back. You were considered weak, a coward, and inferior if you did not respond in kind. But then Jesus came along in this Sermon on the Mount, which Peter's almost certainly referencing here. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Vengeance is mine, says God, not yours. Forgive, and it'll be forgiven you. This would have been, oh, a sucker punch to the gut for Christians. They would have thought, if I live like this, I'm going to be unpopular, an outcast, maybe even hated. But they did it. They did it. Secondly, they cared for the poor. They were a great neighbor because they cared for the poor. When the plagues hit the Roman Empire, you may know that the pagans threw their diseased and dying relatives in the streets, but the Christians picked them up and cared for them and buried them. When their neighbors dropped like flies, pagans fled the cities, but Christians stayed. And to that end, the Roman Emperor Julian had this to say about the early church. He called it atheism, atheism or Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not one single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. They cared for the poor. Number three, they faced death with joy. 
You could lose count listing all the stories of early Christian martyrs who went to their death joyfully. Why were they killed? Well, Julian's statement we just read hints at it. But it was because they did not worship the gods of the state, nor did they worship the emperor as God. And they were therefore convicted, tried, and killed for treason. For treason. The Christians were considered treasonous. They weren't anti-government but they were anti-state worship. They had one foot in the culture, one foot out, and they were being killed for it, which is, of course, why Peter wrote the letter. That's why they died, but why could they joyfully die? It was because of this. It was because of their belief, hear me, in the resurrection, in the resurrection, which we'll look at in depth next week. They knew death wasn't the end, that this world in its present state wasn't their home. God's heart was their home, and if you killed them, oh, that just means their pilgrimage was through. And fourth, finally, they were sexually chaste. And it's a fact. It's a fact. The pagan religion of their day involved temple prostitution. Marriage was a sham. Mistresses were abundant, if not expected. Homosexuality was considered a standard part of sexual expression. And Christians came along and said, sex isn't just an appetite or something you do because your body is inherently evil, as the Gnostics believe. In other words, sex isn't a lowly common, no big deal kind of thing. It's actually amazing. It's lofty. It's a picture of the very gospel itself. And therefore, it's reserved for a man and woman in the context of marriage who do not divorce because sex is a picture of whole life expression, whole life expression. Now look at this. It's from an ancient writing called the letter to Diognetus. And it's fascinating This is a pagan who had converted to Christianity, writing to another pagan, describing the lives he saw first and second century Christians live. And this is what he said. It's a great, it's a great letter. You could look it up on the internet, find it for yourself. He said, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. Another way of translating it, as you may, you may read as it says this, they share a common table, but not a common bed. He's saying they care for the poor. Oh, but they're sexually chaste. Everyone else is bed hopping, but not the Christians. And this is the way the Christians lived. And you know what happened to them as a result. They were persecuted, laws were passed against them, and they were killed by the thousands. But in the end, they flourished, and they changed the Roman Empire from the inside out without lifting a sword or firing a bullet. Now, as we were going through that list, 
We were building some momentum there. I bet you like some of those, especially the forgiveness and caring for the poor parts. And you ought to like those. But that's really because you and I live in a culture that's been deeply influenced by the Christian idea of what's called the Imago Dei. That every person is made in the image of God and therefore, hear this, deserving of love. But the pagans hated that. They hated it. That was offensive. All are deserving. No way. The outcast, the weak, the sick, the dying, they're not deserving. They hated the Christians for that. But today, our culture loves the forgiveness part of the gospel, don't we? But it's offended at the high standard Christians have on sex and marriage. Meanwhile, today, on the other side of our world, a billion Muslims love the Christian sex ethic. Matter of fact, they probably don't think it's strict enough, right? But they hate the forgiveness part. Consider it wrong to not avenge. And all of this, by the way, just proves the Bible is not the product of any one culture, but it's from God and therefore conflicts with every culture, doesn't fit in with any culture or nation or time period. All will be offended by it at some point. And if no one is offended by it, it's not really the gospel. See, And that's what Peter says is going to happen to you. If you are a Christian, at some point, what you do will be considered wrong. And yet, at some point, what you do ought to be considered amazing, inexplicable, eye-popping. People ought to be asking about you, in other words. How can you, how can they have marriages like that? Hmm? How can they give that much money away, right? They should be asking about us. How can all those people with seemingly no other differences all live and love one another in that church, right? Listen, if we don't experience both of these things, we're failing the test. When was the last time you took a hit for your faith? Hmm? Not just for what you believe in silent and private, but for what you did publicly. Your deed, Peter says, your deed. When was the last time... Someone maybe admired you for your faith. When was the last time a deed you did in Jesus' name was so incredible your neighbors had to open up and say, man, what is it about you that compelled you to do that, right? Even people who hate God, it says, ought to be saying this about us. He's saying that's what a Christian ought to look like. How are you doing? No. Are you passing the test? If you're not, you may want to ask, hear me, am I really a Christian? Really a Christian? If you're always abrasive and offensive, that's not first and second Peter. That's called being a jerk. All right. <laughs> but if you're never offensive, that's not first and second Peter either. It's called being a sellout. See, as an exile, as a foreigner, wherever you live and whomever your neighbors are, Peter says, live such good lives, your neighbors are offended by and yet attracted to you. It's just not easy. It's not easy. And let's just admit, most of us, all of us get this wrong at some point, and we all struggle to pass the test. So what can give us the power to pass? Well, not just to pass, but to live it out. Number three, finally, and last question, how can we be this? How can we be who we're called to be? Well, Peter's got a fascinating and famous way of putting about it, putting it, look at there in verse uh, nine, he says, but you are, what's this word? A chosen people, chosen people. He said, once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have. He's saying, in other words, you can live the life God's called you to. You can be a good exile. 
and a good neighbor. If you remember one word, it's the first word there, the word chosen. Now, the word chosen, it just makes people nervous, but it's kind of in the Bible a bunch and in First Peter a lot, so you ought to grasp it, understand it. What does it mean to be chosen? Well, Edmund Clowney, if you've heard the name, was a famous Bible teacher with a really high-pitched and squeaky voice if you listen to him, but he influenced a whole generation of pastors and ministers. In a famous way of talking about this word, he said, if you'll notice, he said, Peter doesn't say, you're a choice people. A choice people. A choice people are really great people, right? You know, hardworking, loyal, thrifty, brave, industrious, smart, and they get merit badges in life. They're who you want on your morality team. First round draft picks, right? But Dr. Clowney said, look at the book of Deuteronomy. When God speaks to Israel, he says this. I chose you, wait for it, because I love you. He said, did you catch that? I chose you because I love you. He says, that's called circular reasoning. It doesn't really make sense. You could read it the other way around, right? I love you because I chose you. It makes about as much sense. And that's the point. See, to be a chosen person is to be a cherished person. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and that's what Dr. Clowney's pointing out. But then he asked another question. Isn't that just the nature of true love? Isn't that what love really is? True love doesn't make sense, right? Real, authentic love doesn't make sense. And by the way, look in your marriage today if you're married or if you're dating and on the way in true love. Odds are, again, in your relationship, you got two people there, and one of which is the one who always asks this kind of question. Do you love me? Do you love me, right? And the other person always says, of course, yes. Then that second person, the first person always asks, but why do you love me, right? Maybe that's you. Maybe that's your spouse. We won't throw either of you under the bus today. The first, you could answer this way, why do I love you? Well, you could answer this way, because your skin is so firm. Because you've got so much money. You're so smart, right? That's why I love you. And by the way, if you are answering like that, the conversation's going downhill really fast, all right? Why? Because that's describing conditional love. Those could be likes, but they're not love. Why not? Because you, if you only love someone because they've got you know, strong arms, what happens if they get flabby? If you love someone because they're rich, what happens if they go bankrupt, right? What happens? Your love would go away. So what should you say? Oh, you should say, I like you for all these reasons, but I love you because you are who you are. I married you. I chose you because I loved you. That's the right answer, husbands. You're welcome. That's what the Bible says it means to be chosen, right? Which is why it goes on to give you another picture. It says you're a special treasure, like the family heirloom or the framed autograph or the special jewel. It's not more special than another, but it is irreplaceable to you. It's cherished by you, one of a kind. And Peter says, that's what you are now, but you weren't always like that. Once he says, you were like this. You weren't special. You weren't treasured. You were not that at all. You were in darkness, got called out of it into light. So what happened? Oh, here's what happened. He says, Jesus happened to you. Jesus happened. Back in verse two, top of the passage. He says, you were chosen because you've been sprinkled with his blood. It's only the blood of Jesus that makes you special as a Christian. He said, how could that be? Like this. Because once upon a time, The Son of God, Jesus, was home. 
He was home inside the Trinity, eternal love. But what did he do? He became an exile like us, didn't he? He left his heavenly home, came to earth. And while he was here, where was his home? Oh, he said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. Son of man has no place to lay his head. But he wasn't just an exile from heaven, was he? No, we exiled him from humanity. We killed him, crucified him outside the city gates, away from any place familiar. He was abandoned by his followers and his father alone on a cross. And when you see him doing that for you, because he had to, because of your fear and cowardice and immorality and all the bitternesses you hold, when you see him doing that and you put your faith in him and you say, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, I have tried to make my ultimate home here in the arms of another or in a location or in my career or my life in some way. When you say to him, oh you died to bring my heart home to you, then you begin your lifelong journey that will one day culminate in the arms and heart of God. One day, you'll get to see him with your own eyes. One day, you'll touch him with your own hands. And when you put your faith in Christ today, now you get the first IV drop of that into your heart today. The Holy Spirit IVs the smells and tastes and snapshots of heaven into your heart today, all of which will be yours in abundance forever. And C.S. Lewis put it like this in his book, The Last Battle, when one of his characters dies and enters eternity with the Christ figure, he said, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for for all my life, though I never knew it until now. And church, if that's what's in your future, and you taste that today, oh, you can live such good lives now and be such good neighbors now. The city will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Can you say amen? Let's go to him now. We're going to respond in a couple ways here, but let's begin in prayer. Oh, Jesus. The ultimate alien, in a sense, the ultimate resident alien, the ultimate exile, would come to you this morning, seeing how you left your home for us. You gave up your convenience and your space, and you made space in your hearts for us, in your heart for us. Lord, give us grace to make space in our hearts for our neighbors. Give us grace to lift up our eyes and see the city today. See the people who walk next to us, live next to us, sleep next to us differently. And we can only do that if we see ourselves as exiles. One foot here and one foot in our home. Lord, I'm praying now that that revelation would grip grip us, change us. In Jesus' name.